Well, if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. We're going to be finishing out John chapter 13 this morning and then digging into the first uh, 14 verses of chapter 14. Uh, Before we get into those verses, though, and into these, uh, these times, these teachings of Jesus, why don't you take a moment now to quiet yourself, to be still, to just take a break, a pause, and just identify how you're feeling, and then invite Jesus into that place. And so, Jesus, I do invite you to speak to us today. Jesus, your words that we're going to study today, we can hear them, but sometimes we we aren't really listening to them, and our hearts can be hard. I pray that you would soften our hearts and that this morning, that you would teach us. And more than anything this morning, I pray that, that as we come out of this teaching and out of this this moment that you would really impress upon us today how much you love us. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, May 24th to 26, 2013. Uh, you maybe don't remember what you were doing on that particular weekend of 2013, but I looked back at some dates this week to May 24th to 26th of 2013. For me, that was the last retreat that I was spending as the youth pastor at Lakeside Church, and in particular, our senior youth retreat. We had uh, 50 or so plus students that were gathered that had decided to come on that weekend. And it was an important weekend for me because I knew that it was my last teaching retreat for these senior youth, the senior youth that I'd been pastoring for the last uh, few years. And so for me, it was significant. But the interesting thing was, is that the youth didn't know that that was going to be my last retreat with them. Three or so weeks later would be the formal announcement where, uh, you know, I got up before the church and communicated that Andre and I were stepping away, that I was resigning at the end of the summer to plant a new church here in the city. And I remember on that retreat, I I had a particular focus. I I knew that this announcement was going to be made and then we'd be transitioning my leadership to somebody else. And so I I really was thinking and praying about, God, what is it that you would want me to teach? And the topic that came to mind was the mission of God, or in other words, the calling that God can place on our lives and him sending us out to join him on mission. That was a big thing that I'd been really rediscovering in that season as far as my own relationship with Jesus and then obviously the calling to plant a church. And then I remember when the announcement was made, there was then a season of about two months where then I was still the youth pastor, but there was a knowledge of my transition. And so I also recognized that that was a unique season to prepare people, prepare the youth, prepare the leaders that that I served with for my departure. Now, the reason that I tell you this because I th- is the reason is that in some sense, I can kind of empathize in a little bit. 
with Jesus and his experience here as we come to uh, kind of the midway through chapter 13. As Spencer introduced us last week to the private ministry of Jesus, you remember two weeks ago, I taught and said that chapter 13 begins the private ministry of Jesus with his disciples, the ones that Jesus spent the majority of his time with during his earthly ministry. John, the writer, the evangelist of this gospel is the one that we're told is the one that Jesus loves. And so Jesus loves and cares for his disciples in chapter 13 on begins his private ministry to them, his deep concern and care for them. And in some sense, when I was getting prepared to leave my post or my call, my, my, my ministry a job as a pastor, as a, as a young adults pastor at Lakeside Church to be prepared to plant Church of the City, there was the wider Lakeside Church community, but then there was the smaller community that I had particular leadership and care for, which was the youth and which were the leaders of the Next Generation Ministries. And and so I had particular concern and focus for them and what I wanted to tell them before I was going to go to prepare them for my departure. And as we come to chapter 13, as I said, that's what Jesus' focus is. And so John the evangelist in his writing here is bringing us into some of Jesus' farewell, what he calls the farewell discourses or his farewell teaching moments with the disciple, with the disciples. And so here in verse 31, of chapter 13, Jesus begins what is going to be one of his farewell discourses with the disciples. Now, what's happened so far in John chapter 13 is Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Spencer did a beautiful job bringing us into that story last week, helping us experience it maybe for the first time, uh, using the analogy of imagine the story is happening on a stage in front of us. We then had the, the, the later half of his teaching was focusing on the betrayal of Judas. And now Judas Iscariot has now left the celebration of the Passover with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has dismissed him and he's going to now, as we're going to see in the coming chapters, truly betray Jesus. And so Jesus is left here with his other disciples. And so what happens? What does he want to tell them? What does he want to teach them as this is kind of his final days with them before his death? Verse 31, when he had gone out, this is speaking of Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, Jesus uses the reference here. He speaks of himself as the son of man. In the Old Testament, the reference to son of man would often speak of the son of man's glory. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, son of man is often used in reference to his suffering. And here, John kind of brings the two together, that the son of man's glory would also be the point of Jesus' suffering. Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified. It's almost as if as Judas leaves, Jesus understands that the next act is beginning. The son of man is glorified. He's going to the cross. And what he then says in these first couple of verses that we're studying here is now is the son of man glorified and the father, God is glorified at the same time. That when we think of the son of man, when we think of Jesus, who's speaking of himself being glorified, God is also glorified. The glory goes both ways. The glory goes both ways. As we've been studying, Jesus is God. He's the son of God. He's divine, God himself. And so as glory goes to Jesus, the son, Glory goes to God the Father. As glory goes to God the Father, glory naturally goes to God the Son, Jesus. Verse 33, Jesus then says, little children. You see, he's kind of taking a bit of paternal love and care for them here. Little children. He says, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, now so, 
So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Jesus affirms what he's also told the Jews, that where he is going, he cannot come, that he's going to go to the cross and they can't follow him to the cross to join him on the cross, but he's also going to go back to the father. And they, they initially, one day they will experience the glory of spending eternity with Jesus and the father, but where he's going, they cannot come. And so in essence, he's telling them, I am leaving. Yes, I've told the crowds that I'm leaving them, but I'm also going to be leaving you. And then he says this, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Jesus here, again, he's communicated that I am going to leave. And so now he's instructing them, his expectations of them when he goes. What is, what is my hope? What is his hope for them when he goes? And he instructs them that they're to love one another. Now he says, a new commandment I give to you. Now, in the Old Testament, are the Jews, are God's people commanded to love one another and to love their neighbor? Absolutely. So we must ask ourselves the question then, is how is this a new commandment? And Jesus here, it's key, the phrase to why this is a new commandment is in his phrasing, just as I have loved you. The new benchmark for how we're to love one another is through looking and seeing how Jesus has loved us. And Jesus is saying, you are to love one another as I have loved you. Now let's think about this. I want to think about this kind of in two spheres. The first sphere of looking at how Jesus has loved the disciple is it, disciples is in his example. And one of this is kind of from a 30,000 foot view is his incarnation. That God the Son humbled himself to take on human form to come to earth. That's, a, that's an example of love expressed through humility. It's a, it's a humble love to come to earth, to live amongst humans. Kind of a second level, 10,000 foot, Jesus calling, God the Son calling these disciples, telling them to follow him, to learn from him, to have spent the last roughly three years of their lives committed and dedicated to him as their rabbi, as their teacher. But then think into the beginning of chapter 13, what we looked at last week. How is another, what is another way that he has loved them by example? He's washed their feet. So when he says, love one another, just as I has loved you, he's saying, look at the example of how I've loved you. And now this is the benchmark for how you are to love one another. Now in Jesus' example of love, it can be really easy to get caught up in kind of the mental reality of that love, thinking about the love, intellectually understanding the example of his love. But I think Jesus is also speaking to another way that just as I have loved you applies in that he's also speaking to the experience of his love. The experience of his love. He's saying, just as I have loved you, just as you have experienced my love for you, so you are to love one another. You see, it's entirely different to have an intellectual understanding of God's love for us expressed through Jesus, the son, through the incarnation, through him, inviting us to follow him through the knowledge of him washing the disciples feet. It's an entirely other thing to recognize and to experience God's love. And we read in the Bible in Romans five, verse five, as Paul's writing to the Romans and to the Roman church, he says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so the way that we experience God's love, the way that we can emotionally experience 
Jesus' love is that the Holy Spirit brings, and literally the, the phrasing is pours, pours the love of God into our lives, pours the love of God into our hearts, and we experience God's love for us. There is a distinction between knowing intellectually the love of God and experiencing the love of God. And what Jesus is saying is here, just as I have loved you through example and as you experience my love, so you are to love one another. And my belief is that when we experience God's love more and more, that is when we become more loving people. It's far too easy at times to mentally understand God's love for us, but to not experience it. And when we don't experience it, we often struggle to show it. But the more that we bathe ourselves in, in God's love for us, the more that we lean into the Holy Spirit as he continues to pour out God's love into our hearts, the more loving we will be to one another. Notice what then Jesus says next. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So not only does Jesus, he's preparing them for when he's gone. And he says, you're going to need to be people that love one another. And there's a new commandment connected to that is that you're going to love one another as I have loved you, just as I have loved you, love one another. But then he goes further to say that you loving each other, just as I have loved you, expressing that to one another, committing to that with one another will be the marker that you are my followers. Now, who's he speaking to? Let's start with the reality that he's speaking to his disciples. So he's thinking about the way that disciples of Jesus love disciples of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but you're, maybe your mind is already going to the application of this. How are we doing as disciples of Jesus loving other disciples of Jesus? How quickly do we put up walls and barriers between ourselves and other followers of Jesus, other disciples of Jesus, where we don't focus on the things that draw us together and the unity of our relationship and our discipleship to Jesus. We focus on the differences and therefore we say we can't work together. Or you think about the disunity that we see in the Christian community right now around the COVID-19 pandemic, around racial injustice. It seems at every turn we're, we're seeing not agreement, but disagreement a lack of love for one another. Yet what does Jesus say? He says, by this, by you loving one another, as I have loved you, this will be the mark of your discipleship to me. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, listen, there's a way that people will love in this world. You know, we, we can see that. We hear that a lot. Just love. Now, oftentimes, if we look really closely, this is a love with conditions. You know, love those you agree with. What Jesus is then saying is there's a way the world loves, but then there's a way that my followers and disciples will love. And it will be distinct and different from the way the world loves. And my conviction is that we in the church follow more the way that the world calls us to love than the way that Jesus commands us to love, which is based on his example, which is what enemy love. I mean, look who Jesus feet, whose feet Jesus just watched. Judas Iscariot, the one that he knew was going to betray him. The one that he allowed to continue in his earthly ministry with him. Yet he washed his disciples' feet. And what does Jesus teach us in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said to love your neighbor, but dislike your enemy. He says, I, I tell you, love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. 
Jesus' example and then our experience of his love changes how we love other people. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? You notice here that the Simon Peter has completely skipped the new commandment of verse 34 and 35, and he's gone back to Jesus saying, I'm going to leave. You know, in, in some sense, he's, he's avoiding the obedience requirement of the commandment. And he's going to, I just want to stay close to you. Where are you going, Jesus? Which, if we think about, is sometimes far easier. It's easier to just say, I want to be close to Jesus, but not actually obey Jesus. What does Jesus say back to him? He says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. What's Jesus referring to? He's referring to his cross. You, you can't follow me to the cross, Peter. Only I can be the lamb of God. Only I can take away the sins of the world. And you, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. If we study history and we know as we look further on that three days, decades later, Peter would be killed for his love for Jesus. And so it's something later on that Jesus says will happen, but you will follow me afterward. But notice how Peter responds to this. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You see the great intentions of, of Peter. No, I, I'll go with you, Jesus. I'll even go so far as to lay down my life for you. He has great intentions. What does Jesus say? How does he answer? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. <laughs> Just stop for a moment and think about this interaction. Lord, Jesus, where, where are you going well, where I'm going, you can't come, but you can follow me afterward. No, Jesus, like, I want to go with you and I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus responds, will you lay down your life for me? You're going to deny me three times. Peter overlooked his, his human inabilities at this point. His, his the human emotions, the reality his own fragility. Yet here, Jesus is saying something significant. I mean, think again about the context. Jesus said that one of the disciples would betray him. That has happened. Jesus now said that one of the disciples would deny him. We have to assume that it's going to happen. Yet think also about what Peter says he will do. He says, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, no, you will deny me. But who is the one who would go and lay his life down for Peter? Jesus, that Jesus knowing that Peter will go to deny him three times is still going to go to the cross to lay his life down for Peter. And one day Peter would lay his life down for Jesus, but here he's going to deny him. Yet Jesus will lay his life down for him. And this is the scandal of grace. Unmerited favor, undeserved love, that in the face of denial, Jesus would still go to the cross for Peter. And in the face of your denial, and this should be a great encouragement to you, that even when you've had the best intentions and you've denied him and you haven't lived up to the standard that you set for yourself, he still says to you while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, I died for you. Before every single one of your denials, I died for you. I knew you were going to do it and I died for you anyways. That's how much he loves you. 
Let's move into chapter 14. Jesus now teaches, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. You know, it's interesting. If you go back to chapter 12, verse 27, we read Jesus saying, now is my soul troubled. So think about the contrast that Jesus' soul is troubled knowing of his death and his suffering. Yet here, Jesus is the one that says, okay, now my disciples are troubled. I am going, he shows a sensitivity and his love for them and trying to comfort them as their experience feeling troubled. And what does he tell them to do? Believe in God, believe also in me. And sometimes he's sense he's saying, guard your hearts with your mind. Sometimes he's saying, you've believed well, continue to believe God, continue to believe in me. He's almost assuring them, you know, as they're kind of going, what are you saying? Peter's now going to deny you? Judas already left. Peter's going to deny you? He says, continue to believe in God, believe also in me. Guard your heart with your mind. Believe in me. It doesn't mean you can't experience emotion. It, can't, it doesn't mean you can't experience being troubled, but believe in me and allow that to guard your heart. Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus is, is really layering everything that he's saying here now and going forward with the reality that he says, it's actually to your advantage that I go. He's going to say that about the Holy Spirit in a couple of chapters, but he's also kind of relaying all of this to the same reality. He's like, it's to your advantage that I go. He's saying, in my father's house, which is where I am ultimately going to go when I ascend, are many rooms. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Now, I used to think about this in the sense of preparation that, you know, Jesus was going back to the father and, you know, he was putting on his construction hat and he's kind of constructing the walls of the buildings of heaven. But in reality, as I've done more study and research, I think what Jesus is actually referencing when he says prepare is in his death and with his resurrection. Then his death and resurrection, as we read in John already, that all people will be welcome to come to him. And so essentially, in that sense, heaven is, has been prepared. We're still now awaiting Jesus' return. And this is what he's saying. There's many rooms. All people can come to him through belief in the Son. But then what he's also saying is, I am going to go away for a while. But then what does he promise? I'm going to come back so that we can be together. He's saying, this is, this is to your advantage that I go. Because I'm going to come back so that we can be together ultimately what we understand forever. And he says in verse four, and you know the way to where I'm going. Notice what he said earlier, he said, believe in God, believe also in me. He's now getting into the fact that believe in God, believe also in me. You know the way to where I'm going. Believe in God, believe also in me is a reference to, you know where I'm going. Just continue to believe in me. But Thomas, verse five, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? You know, expresses Thomas, if, you know, he's probably the one here that asked, as we see here, but it's probably the confusion that all the disciples are experiencing. He says, Lord, if, if we don't know the destination, if we don't know the place, how are we going to know the path to get there? And how does Jesus respond to his confusion? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know, do know him and have seen him. Now, this, this verse six, I'm sure you've heard it before. 
I want us to remember though, first the context in which Jesus speaks these words. Who's he speaking it to? He's speaking it to who? His disciples. Those whom he spent intense time with as their rabbi and as their teacher and as their Lord. And they're troubled, right? They're troubled. They're, they're probably wondering in some sense, Jesus, why are you leaving us? Jesus, we left our, our vocations to follow you. They're probably in some sense wondering like, have we chosen well, Jesus, in following you? What do you mean? Where are you going? We, we want to go there too. How are we going to get there? And into this context, what does Jesus say to them? I am the way and the truth and the life. In other words, he's assuring them and saying, you have chosen well. You have chosen well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the, the, the point of kind of intense focus here is the way, right? They're saying, we don't know the way. So Jesus, in essence, is saying, I am the way, I am the way to truth, and I am the way to life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. It's certainly an exclusive statement, but think also of the invitation that it is. That in one part, Jesus, in one, in one sort of reality, Jesus is assuring them, you've chosen well. I am the way. You haven't wasted the last years of your life. And even when I'm gone, you're not going to continue to waste. You still should remain committed to me. Because no one comes to the Father but through me. So I am the way. I am the truth. He's both the path and he is the destination. As he says in verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is both the path, the way, and the destination to the father. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. You know, Philip's not so unlike other people have said, you know, Jesus, show us the father, show us God, or even Moses in Exodus who says, God, show me yourself. But humans cannot see that much of God yet live. He's so holy. Yet here the disciples, like many before, are saying, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough. We'll believe you. How does Jesus respond? I imagine he's responding in these questions that he asks them with a bit of sadness. And with that, here are these words. He asks them questions. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Now imagine Jesus, as I said, there's probably a level of sadness to these questions to him and this, this level of his teaching. He's saying, guys, like we've been together for so long and are you still saying you don't believe that I'm God's son? Are you still saying that you don't believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? He's saying, you must like think about the things that I've taught you. Think about the experience that we've had together. He even says, look at the works and the miracles that I've done, the signs does he not testify that, that what I'm saying here is true? What do you mean you want to see the Father? I, when you see me, you see the Father. You can't know the Father but through me. Now, in some way, we can empathize with the disciples if we think about this in the context of has the Holy Spirit yet to come upon them? Has the love of God been poured out into their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit has not yet come upon them that we see in Pentecost. 
And so once the Holy Spirit comes, when Jesus is raised from the dead, there's a certain boldness. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, there's an increased boldness as they receive the Spirit of God. And so in some sense, they're trying to mentally grasp it. They've had experience with God, Jesus' love for them, but they're still, like we've seen in the crowd so often, they're still confused. And where we'll close off today in these verses, verse 12 to 14, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, before I explore these verses with you, I want you to see kind of the, the order of the text. We've seen Jesus, again, he's preparing the disciples for his departure. He's teaching them. He sees that Judas's departure kind of opens up a new scene and he commands them. He says, you are to love one another just as I have loved you. Experience my love. And out of the experience of that love and that example of my love, love one another. He then has Peter express his allegiance to him. Yet Jesus says, listen, Peter, you're going to deny me. But I am going to lay down my life for you as we understand the story. An incredible scandal of grace. And then we see the disciples are troubled. And so Jesus is comforting them and saying that it's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go. And it's still at the invitation. I am the way. Come to me. Notice here what he is saying in verses 12 to 14. Now he kind of provides the commission. He says, when you come to me, when you experience my love, when you recognize my grace and that I will lay down my life for you, and then I, I tell you and invite you to say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. As you receive me, you have a promised destination of being with me forever and with the Father. He now says, though, I, you are going to continue my ministry. And look what he says. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. He's now saying, I'm going to send you out on mission to do the works that I do. Notice what he says. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, over the last number of years, I've had a certain understanding about what Jesus is referring to when he says greater works. And there's two cue words that I've thought of. Is, is Jesus, when he's referring to this of greater works that, that his followers and disciples will do after he leaves, is he speaking about the, the quality and I don't think he's speaking about the quality. I mean, will we do works that are greater than the works that Jesus has done during his earthly life and ministry? I don't think that's what's going on here. The other way to think about this is that what about the quantity? The quantity of works will increase. And, that, and that's a true thing, right? Like Jesus performed miracles during his time here on earth. But over the last 2000 years, the spirit of God has still been doing miraculous things through his followers through the power of the Holy Spirit and people have been healed. So it, it's certainly true in some sense that there would be a quantity that would be spoken of here. But I think in reality, what Jesus is talking about here in greater works is the time in which those works would be done. And they'll be greater because they're going to be after his death, his resurrection and ascension. That through his resurrection and his ascension, we believe that Jesus is alive. And so any works that are done post will point back to Jesus. And we see this in Acts. We see the, the apostles performing miracles and works. And every miracle and work that they perform or that the Holy Spirit does through them that they give as a gift points to Jesus and people after they have been healed, the disciples and apostles are very clear. They say, listen, it's not me that heals you. It's Jesus that heals you. And people would leave glorifying and praising God. 
And so Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to send you out in greater works that you will you do. And those works will bring glory to the father. And he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the father may be glorified in the son. When those works are done, he's saying, I will be glorified and the father will be glorified at the same time. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, some of us are maybe sitting here going, what do you mean if we ask anything in his name, he will do it? What this means, I, I think, is more speaking, Jesus speaking to this. He answers every single prayer. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. And sometimes he says not yet or wait. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. And sometimes he says wait. The point being that the works that are done will point to him in the past his life, death, and resurrection, his ascension, but also to the future when he will return. That when our prayers are not answered, maybe for healing, that we look forward to the day when Jesus will return to be with us and there will be no more pain and death and suffering. And so greater works in that they point back and they also point forward. Now, as we close today and as we transition into communion, so if you don't have your communion elements yet prepared, I want to let you know we're going to be taking communion with one another. I want to kind of look at this text in kind of three different movements, kind of four movements in some sense. The first being Jesus' new commandment. Maybe today the way to apply this text today is to recognize that you intellectually see the example of Jesus' love, but you haven't been experiencing his love. You know, I, I want to be honest with you. This has kind of been a little bit of where I've been at lately, where my mental or intellectual understanding of Jesus' love for me has not been challenged. I have done the mental work, but yet the intimacy or the experience of his love has been waning. In some sense, lately, it's, it's almost felt like we're roommates. You can maybe understand that analogy through maybe a friends that you have or through a spouse that there's maybe been seasons where some of the intimacy, the experience of love has been lost. Yet You know that they still love you, but you've kind of become roommates. And so maybe this morning you just need to hear the words, just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you, that you are loved. That you are cared for. God loves you, period. It's who he is. Or maybe for you, you're challenged by Peter's good intentions, yet the reality that he would deny Jesus. Maybe for you, as I said a little bit earlier in this message, maybe for you, you've had all these good intentions, yet your actions feel like ongoing denial. Like you had a desire, God, I wasn't going to sin this week. <laughs> I wasn't going to keep doing that thing yet it's kept up. And so maybe you just need to be reminded today that the scandal of God's grace is that Jesus has laid down his life for you and that through faith in him, by his grace, you're saved. Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Or maybe for you, you, you maybe don't see the advantage of Jesus going. You maybe don't see the advantage of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Maybe for you, you, you're in a place of, you're like, I've chosen Jesus, but my relationship with Jesus is waning. I'm feeling all these pressures of our culture against Christian values and beliefs that have been beliefs for 2,000 years and longer. 
And so you're like, have I chosen well? There seems to be all these different roads, all these paths. Maybe they're the way to truth. Maybe they're the way to life. And maybe you, like the disciples in some sense, need to just hear the invitation of Jesus and the assurance that he provides of, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to truth. I am the way to life. Or maybe for you, the final movement of this text is when Jesus invites us on his mission and he promises us that we will go and we'll do great works. You know, Ephesians 2 verse 10, we often focus on verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, but by the grace of God, we sometimes miss Ephesians 2 verse 10 that says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he has prepared beforehand, that God has gone ahead of us and that we're to follow him on mission, doing works that he's called us to do and empowers us to do by his spirit, both the mundane and the miraculous. And so as we come to communion today, I'd love to invite you to consider of those four challenges from the text, which one most resonates. And as we take the, 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 the cup and as we take the bread, I want to invite you to thank Jesus in that moment for what the cup and for what the bread means as it relates to that challenge. And so with that, would you take the juice or wine and would you drink it remembering the shed blood of Jesus on your behalf? And maybe you're experiencing as you take that afresh again, the love of God for you, the experience, the experience of his love. I also want to invite you now to take the bread and take a little piece of it. And as you take it, remember the broken body of Jesus who laid down his life for you so that you could live so that there wouldn't be shame about denial, so that you wouldn't have to fear the wrath of God because you've been covered by Jesus' blood and his perfection, his substitute, his life and his body broken for you. And so take this now, remembering his broken body. And so I, Jesus, I, Jesus, I thank you for the words today from this gospel of John. I pray that you would multiply, multiply any efforts that I've brought by your spirit, multiply the words of this text and the implications into the lives of all those that are listening today and watching. I pray that we would be a people that experience yours, your love, and that that would result in that we would love one another. Pray that would people recognize that you laid down your life for us, even when we deny, that we'd recognize that we are people who can be assured that we've chosen the right way, and that that way is Jesus, and that then, Jesus, you commission us out. And so would we be people that go, a people of love, a people of grace, and a people of assurance that we've chosen well, our Savior. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for your love. May we experience it more deeply today. We pray in your name. Amen.
As we close today, I want to reread verses 34 and 35 of chapter 13. These are the words of Jesus. They're the red letters. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God bless and let's live out this love so that Guelph looks a little bit more like heaven.